Welcome back to From the Workbench. Uh, my name's Don Van Zandt. Um, this is my shop. Um, and I'm glad you've joined me tonight for a conversation about God, the Bible, religion, and culture. Um, if, if you've been here before, you know how we do this. Every Thursday night we get together and we, we have a conversation about God. If you're new here, though, um, I just like to say I'm glad you're here. Um, I've had several new folks on the Facebook page recently, and so I hope a few of you will stop by for the video tonight. If not, that happens, um, but I'm glad you guys are here, like I said, for a conversation about God, the Bible, religion, and culture, and all that happens right here at the workbench. Um, we are in the middle, or in the second part of our series, The Bible Reports, but before we get into that, let me make one or a couple of small announcements. Just this last week, From the Workbench has launched our new podcast. So basically, I'm taking these live videos, taking audio from those, and uploading those as a podcast. Now, right now, if you're interested, you can find the podcast on Spotify, um, Anchor Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and looks like that's it for now. Um, I hope you guys will go and subscribe, listen to the podcast. Uh, the more you guys listen, the more reach I'm able to gain. And guys, we, want, we just want to get out there and share the gospel with everybody that I can. I'll be honest with you, this isn't, this, is, this isn't really something that I just exactly wanted to do. I enjoy doing it and talking with you guys, but being a, a video guy and a podcast guy is something that, that's new to me and I don't know just a whole lot about, but I want to get the message the gospel out there to as many people as I can. So I'm asking you to help me out. Um, go and subscribe to the podcast. Download, listen. I would greatly appreciate it. If you can't catch all the video tonight or you can't catch it through Facebook and you want to listen, well, now you have another option. Um, check out Spotify or any of those other platforms that I just mentioned. So, so we can get this message out. Second announcement, and I'm not going to go into this very much at all, here tonight because if you are keeping up with the state of our country right now, you know where we're at. And I'm simply going to ask you as friends, as Christian brothers and sisters, pray for our country, pray for America, pray that God would have mercy, that he would help us. All right, that said, we're going to just get right into this tonight. Now, now last week we, we began our study on the Bible reports and here's how it's going to work. Um, every week, I'm going to go and study the history and translation of the Bible, come back and report to you guys my findings, and we're going to share this time together, all right? Last week, we talked about um, why translation was important, and if you've not watched that video or listened to that podcast, I uh, go back and check it out. This week, we're going to take a little bit of a diversion. We're not getting into the history yet. This week, we're talking about inspiration. Now, inspiration is vital. Inspiration is so important when we talk about our Bibles. Because if the Bible is not inspired, <laughs> if it didn't come from God, then what's the point? You know, why does any of this even matter? Why would we care to have an accurate um, copy in our hands? Why, why would it matter that, that this book is, is as close to exact as we can get it? Why would any of that matter if the Bible were not inspired by God himself? We could just change it. We could add books to it, take books away from it, change things around. 
whatever we wanted to do, we could do because basically we would have creative control. It would be a work made by man, edited, changed, but we do whatever we wanted. But it wasn't. It was it was um, inspired by God, and we're going to talk about that here tonight. All right. <clears throat> um, but what is inspiration? Basically, when, when, when we talk about inspiration, now there's a lot of philosophical sort of jargon that surrounds inspiration. Um, there are a lot of things that we could uh, talk about, and we could spend weeks just, just camped out right here if we wanted to get into all of the, the philosophical elements of it. But uh, that's really not, not the point here. Um, we're, we're, we're really going to talk about the history and translation, but we want to cover this first. But, but a few different, I, I think I have five written down here. Five different uh, theories of inspiration. I'm going to go over these quickly, and then we'll talk about some about inspiration. First one, dynamic or partial inspiration. This view believes that God provided the enabling needed for the transmission of truth, which the writers of Scripture were commissioned to deliver. All right, and that sounds great when, when, when you hear it that way. <coughs> but here's the problem when, when you hold this, this dynamic or, or partial view of inspiration. The problem is this. Ultimately, this, this view <coughs> excuse me, leads to the belief that only portions of the scriptures are inspired. All right? Um, and usually these are portions of scripture that, that refer to elements of faith. Uh, so anything to do with prophecy or history or, um, uh, or or science, scientific elements of the Bible, we wouldn't accept those as being inspired. The Bible would only be partially uh, inspired. The rest of it would be left open to debate. We're going to reject four out of five of these theories tonight, and we reject this one, right? Because we don't believe that we pick and choose, that there was just a portion of Scripture that was inspired. We take the whole thing as being inspired by God. Another view that I wasn't really familiar with, the term itself, but I'm familiar with the concept, um, is a view referred to as the neo-Orthodox um, view of inspiration. This view is similar to dynamic inspiration. It maintains that while there are supernatural elements present, the Bible contains errors and cannot be taken literally. Neo-Orthodoxy maintains that God speaks through Scripture as a means of communicating truth to the individual. However, this truth is realized only to the degree the individual recognizes or comprehends it. Basically, the Neo-Orthodox view takes this position that well, Scripture is only true as much as I believe it to be true. It's this idea of subjective truth that so pervades society that what is true for you may not be true for me. What is your truth? All those sort of mystical New Age elements. Well, that's an approach that's taken with the Bible. And honestly, I do know a lot of Christians that wouldn't admit it, but they hold this view. Because if you go to them with an objective truth about Scripture, this is what the Bible says. Well, that's just not... Oh, there goes my mic. Um, they, they say, well, that's just not what I believe. <laughs> well, quite honestly, my opinion, your opinion doesn't matter the Bible is objectively true, and as such, we should accept it as objective truth. So that's the neo-Orthodox view of inspiration. Natural inspiration is exactly what it sounds like, that the Bible is merely a natural book produced naturally by men. God did not play a role in the composition or um, in any inspirational role with the book. The man wrote it down, and that's that. 
it's really, it's almost an, an atheistic view of Scripture. They, they, they cut God out of it. Man wrote it down, and that's that. And I'm sure that some of you, in your conversations, have heard people make that comment before, well, the Bible was just written by men. How can we trust it? And yes, while men were the writers, God is the author. All right, and that's 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 sort of the the dividing line, the differentiation there is it. Yes, while it was written by men, it was authored by God. Um, number four, the dictation theory. Now, this takes the complete opposite view of what the natural inspiration theory says. The dictation theory says this: that God, um, the, the the writers recorded God's words without any participation of their own styles or personalities. They mechanically recorded the words of Scripture, much as a secretary might write down the words they were told to write. This view asserts that God dictated the Bible in its entirety. And some even argue that the grammar must be perfect in every place because it's the Holy Spirit's grammar. (laughs) I laugh at that because when you say it out loud, it just sounds foolish. God did not supernaturally dictate his word through men, right? Um, God is a God of great individuality and of great originality. Um, and, and this dictation theory removes all the human element from Scripture. And this sort of robot view of inspiration, it's not only radical and it's not only bizarre, but really I think it's easily dismissed if you just read your Bible, right? If you just take your Bible and you open it up and you read it, you, you notice from a literary standpoint that Genesis doesn't read like Third John, that um, Psalm 23 doesn't read like Romans chapter 8. Uh, the, the, the personalities and styles of the authors is very present when we read our Bible. So the, the dictation theory doesn't work for me. Historically, it doesn't work um, just for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, culturally, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of cultural elements. Look at the life of Christ. Through his parables, Christ spoke to his culture, met them where they are. Um, even in the elements of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, while they all record similar events, especially John, um, there's differentiation there. But even in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are differences because the personalities of the writers are on full display. Okay, so the dictation theory doesn't really work for me. But let me give you the one that the church traditionally holds to, um, sort of the orthodox position of the church, and that is the verbal and or uh, plenary inspiration view. And this says the Bible is God's word to humanity. It was written by human authors, but God prompted them and guided them to write what they did. Every word word form, and word placement found in the Bible's original manuscripts was divinely and intentionally written. Okay, the original manuscripts, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, the difference between original manuscripts, translations, so on and so forth. So this view strikes the right balance of human and divine. It allows for the perfect work of the Holy Spirit in authoring scripture, but he does it while allowing the expression of the specific writer's Personality, And like I said, this is the traditional view held by the church. 
that's the one that I hold to. That's what I believe to be true. And that to me, that really just seems to be the one that, that from, from just a rational, logical perspective makes the most sense. So I hold to this verbal uh, plenary view of inspiration. Okay, so we went over these five views, right? There they are. They're put out there. Do your own research if you want to look into that more. There's more to that conversation. Um, but let's see what Scripture has to say um, about itself, right? What does Scripture have to say about its own inspiration? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration. There's that all-important word, by inspiration of God, not inspiration of man. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So there's all this, this vast array um, of use for scripture, and it was all inspired by God. You know, a lot of times we think that, that possibly scripture is only meant to encourage me, to, to lift me up. Oh, I, I opened my Bible and I read and I was encouraged. Sometimes you'll even get a notification on your phone from certain Bible apps. Here's your daily word of encouragement. Well, and that's great, but it's also here for doctrine. <laughs> so for some reason, folks don't like that word. I just don't like doctrine. Well, you don't like the Bible. <laughs> Maybe that's blunt, but that's, that's what it says. Um, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, uh, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All right, so we, we want the Word of God to speak to us. But that word inspiration in verse 16 comes from the Greek word theopneustos, which means God-breathed. Theo or theo for God, and and I guess um, maybe the P would be silent there. Neustos, theopneustos, um, divinely breathed, given by inspiration of God. It's the same uh, root word from which we derive our English words, Pneumatic, pneumonia, uh, words that deal with air, with breathing. If you work in construction or around power tools or air tools, you know exactly what a pneumatic tool is. It's an air-powered device. Um, <laughs> with COVID right now, we've all heard the term pneumonia over and over and over again. So then when we say scripture is inspired by God, we literally mean that God breathed out scripture. In other words, the Bible that we hold in our hands is the very Word of God. And when we read it, it's just as authoritative as though God himself is speaking to you and I. This is an inspired work. It came from God, and, and we can trust it. We can rely on it. Um, we, can, we can stand on the truth of the Word of God because it's, it's, it's his Word, right? Um, so the next time you're praying and you're saying, oh, God, speak to me, God, speak to me, God, speak to me. Well, well maybe you should open this book and, and you know, let God speak to you. I remember a few years ago, I was listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler told um, or made this point during his sermon. Um, he was referring back to the Beatitudes when, when Jesus says, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, we've all heard this before, right? We've all, we've all heard that verse quoted coming up as a kid, you know, through various camp meetings, uh, Pentecostal services, preaching. I always heard this referenced, and, and it was made in regard to a person that wanted to be spirit-filled. You know, blessed are they which are hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And they made it about the spirit. And, and I always took it that way. 
But Christ isn't even mentioning that there. So Matt Chandler had this to say in his sermon. Matt Chandler said, If you are hungry, then open your Bible and eat. Feast on the very words of God. That's my recommendation to you tonight. If you're watching this video or if you're listening through the podcast, then open the word of God and feast, friend. Let the word of God feed your soul. Let it speak to you um, rather than waiting on some sort of supernatural divine um, word from God. And we'll talk about that as well here in a little bit, okay? A few more scriptures, though, uh, surrounding the idea of inspiration. Now, we can go all the way back into the Old Testament with the prophet Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Honestly, a lot of what he had to say was not real um, encouraging. <laughs> but this, this is what God had to speak to uh, the young prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, this is Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, again, God to Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, this is Jeremiah to God. Then said I, ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. <laughs> I'll be honest with you guys, I felt that way <laughs> just lately. Uh, <laughs> God, I just, I can't speak. Um Behold, Lord God, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Praise God for that. God literally was telling Jeremiah, I'm going to speak through you. Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't say, oh, I'm just a kid. I'm just a youth. I don't know what to say. God's telling Jeremiah here in this passage, I'm going to speak through you. All right. Now, I'm not going to tell anybody out there that, that God's telling you that today. He told that to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah went and then spoke the words of God. We can hope and pray that God uses us. I hope and pray that God uses my words and makes them his words um, because I want to be true to him and truthful to the word of God, but I'm not going to even attempt to make some outrageous claim. Uh, then on over into the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1. And so uh, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy is of, of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God, so Jeremiah, back in the Old Testament, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right? So, again, this book, of no private interpretation. What it means for me, it means for you guys that are watching, it means for your neighbor down the street, it means for your mother, your father, your in-laws, your kids. It, mean, it means the same thing. There's no private interpretation. So when I hear folks say things like, well, well what, what's that scripture just saying to you? It doesn't matter what you think it may be saying to you. Application is not any, does not supersede um, interpretation. Okay? You can apply scripture to various areas of life, but it only has one singular interpretation. What it means for me, it means for you. Quite simply, that's how. 
That's how it works, all right? These passages speak to us of inspiration. They do, of God's inspiration, but not of translation. And that's what our series is about, is about translation. You say, well, what's the difference here? What? So what, okay? <laughs> well, here's, here's a problem. Um, the problem with elevating any translation of the Bible. <clears throat> For example, the KJV, the King James Version. I'm a huge fan of the KJV. was brought up on it, love it. Um, I have it on my desk or the bench right now with me. Um, I love it. But the problem with elevating any translation like the KJV to inspired status is to equate the works of those translators with the works of prophets like Daniel, like Ezekiel. And so I would have a, a hard time as much as we study back through church history, and I appreciate men like Desiderius Erasmus and his work uh, with the, the Textus Receptus, or men like John Wycliffe, who did great work of translation of his own, I would not be so foolish as to attempt to say that these translators' words were on par with Moses or with Paul the Apostle. All right? We can't equate the two. We can't make those one and the same. We cannot take any singular translation of the Word of God. And I know I have a lot of friends out there, many of you that are watching tonight are um, of the, the sort of KJV-only belief. Well, if, if we elevate that to the place of saying it is an inspired work, we really do an injustice to the Word of God as a whole because it's, it's, it's a translation. And translations by default are imperfect because they were translated by imperfect men. These men that did the translation work were not inspired of God. You cannot prove that. Biblically, scripturally, there's no case to be made for that. I don't know how people come up with that, but really they have ventured outside of what the Word of God has to say about itself. And I would tell us to be careful of that, okay? <clears throat> so here's the question. Are the words themselves inspired? Or just the message? All right, so what, what, when we say inspiration, how, how particular are we with that? Is it every single individual word that's inspired? Or is it just God inspired the, the message and we should just continue that message forward? Which one? Well, here's what I would say. I don't want to make it an either or type of an answer. I don't think that's justice. I don't think that's doing uh, in, in all fairness to the conversation. Um, I believe it's a both and. Okay, and I, 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 let, me, let, me, let me tell you why. Both the message of Scripture is inspired and the words themselves. As such, we should strive to have an accurate translation of the Bible that gets the message right, but also does not stray too far from the actual words themselves. Okay? And there's so much more to be said about this. Because with our translations, we don't have the original manuscripts. We don't have the original autographs anymore. They have been lost um, to history. So we can't just pull them up and translate them. And if we could, they, they wouldn't work perfectly because that's not how language works, right? Um, if we were to take, if we had the original copy of, of, of Romans in front of us right now, as written by Paul, written by his hand, if I had it in front of me and I were able to translate Greek into English, and I just translated it right across, it wouldn't make sense. Think of it this way. So, in, in, in regards to translation, um, <laughs> I don't speak Spanish either. I only speak English, and I don't even do a very good job of that. Um, but uh, in, in regards to translation, if an, a Spanish-speaking person were to come to me 
and make a statement in Spanish and somebody were to translate that word for word over into English, it wouldn't make any sense to me. The same thing because of sentence structure and the gender rules that apply. Languages just don't operate that way. Same thing for English back into Spanish. It just doesn't work. There must be some element of translation that exists there. and Word for word just doesn't, doesn't quite function. So we need to do our best to preserve the message, but as close as we can to preserve the words themselves. And I believe Jesus held a similar view. All right? He said this. Because I know some of you are already thinking, well, Jesus, Jesus said that not one jot, not one tittle of the word was going to pass away. Well, let's talk about it. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 and 18, Jesus speaking to the scribes, Do not think that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Okay, like I said, I'm sure you've heard this before, um, that when Jesus speaks of one jot and one tittle, it's similar to crossing a T or to dotting an I. Um, and this sort of pinpoint accuracy that Christ is referring to speaks not only of Christ's great care for the Old Testament scriptures, for the law, as he's speaking of the law there, he plainly said that, but also of his focus on completing his mission as those very scriptures were speaking to him. Let's read it again. All right. I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, one jot or one tittle shall by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Christ fulfills on the cross, okay, the law. Also notice something else, though. If we read later on, a couple of verses later, Jesus is not in any way using this. Now, now, now listen to me. Jesus is not in any way using this as an opportunity to endorse the Pharisees or the scribes' um, work of translation. <clears throat> I think I may have mentioned this last week, that Christ likely used what was called the Greek Septuagint. So whether Christ was referring to the Septuagint as a translation or what, I don't think that's not his point. That's not his point at all. Jesus says this right here. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, speaking back to the crowd, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes. I love it. It just kind of makes a dig at the scribes. They were the translators of that day. Of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter to the kingdom of heaven. Even though the scribes and Pharisees went to painstaking measures to ensure textual accuracy, they were still unrighteous. <laughs> and I love how Christ just, just kind of makes that point full circle with him. Look, you guys have this law. You do your best to preserve it. But I tell you what, to the crowd, he says, that unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, these guys try to preserve to one jot, one tittle, get it exactly as they can. But then he calls them out unrighteous, all right? Um, so let me give you a couple of observations. Number one, it's of no value to have a legalistic view of Christianity. No value. Christ wasn't legalistic in his approach. Um, Paul wasn't legalistic in, in his approach. Um, when Peter attempted to be legalistic <laughs> in Galatia, Paul withstood him to the face. Um, matter of fact, there's an entire council held in the book of Acts that was about legalism and 
Spoiler alert, it didn't go well for those that were legalistic. So Christ is not endorsing a legalistic view of Scripture. And if you and I hold a legalistic perspective, then we don't hold a Christ-like perspective when it comes to the law. All right, so number one, it's of no value to hold a legalistic view of Christianity. Number two, Jesus is not making a statement about the perfection of any one translation here. Like I said, be it the Greek Septuagint or some other Hebrew text, he's not endorsing one translation. He is referring to his work on the cross. And finally, number three, I wouldn't encourage anyone. Okay, guys, this is important. I wouldn't encourage anyone to use this setting of Scripture to endorse a translation. That's not the point of Christ. I don't think that we would do justice to the, to the Word of God to say, well, not one jot or one tittle will pass away, so because of that, we should use such and such translation. I think that really we're twisting the Scripture if we do that, and we should be careful in regards to that. Let's, let's, let's let the Bible be the Bible, all right? And let's not try to build our views into it. All right? <clears throat> Next question. Is the Bible the only inspired work? Oh, yeah. Is the Bible, this book, the only inspired work. <clears throat> so some take their view as far as to say that God does not speak today. And honestly, this is where I differ with those guys. I differ with the cessationist view. I do believe God speaks, but not in such a way that is on par with Scripture. Okay? God does still speak today. I believe it with all my heart. He's speaking to people. But his speaking today isn't on par with Scripture. Okay? The, the view that God, <laughs> this is what the cessationists will say. Matter of fact, a popular preacher in their movement, I heard a sermon from him just this week where that's what he says. He says, well, God either spoke or God did not speak. And that's how they want to present it. And it sounds powerful and, it's, and, it, and it confuses our mind. And we think, well, what do we say? But really, I think that what happens, that preacher there, even though he's a man I have great respect for, um, he, uh, it's, it, it's, it's John MacArthur. I'll just tell you, John MacArthur is never going to see this video. He doesn't care about me. Um, John MacArthur holds that view that um, God either spoke or he didn't speak, and he does that to really just kind of bolster his argument. But what I think that John MacArthur is guilty of there is building this sort of false dichotomy, all right, this false narrative, this false view that you have to say, well, God either spoke or he didn't speak. I don't think that's doing... Uh, justice to the conversation because you and I, as continuationists who believe that God is still speaking and the gifts of the Spirit are still in operation today, we, we would tend to say something different. We don't believe that God is revealing new scripture, right? I don't. I don't believe that, that God is, is out there moving on men's hearts and they're pinning down the Word of God and we'll add that you know as a new book right after the book of Revelation. I don't believe that at all. And if somebody were to come to me and tell me that, I would tell them you're a false prophet. You didn't hear from God. God didn't tell you that. Okay? <clears throat> um, God is speaking to the whole... Um, I'm sorry. God is not speaking to the whole of humanity in the form of new scripture. But God is speaking to individual men. See the difference there? So the cessationist view says, well, God either spoke or he didn't speak. And they want to pound their fist and close the door on the conversation. But that is not fair, and it's really not true to the conversation. All right? God is speaking to men. He does so in an individual way. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Real simple. Um, perhaps you have prayed about a change of job situation, or perhaps you have prayed about 
um, if you're if you're a young single person about a spouse and wanted God to show you um, or to, to lead you to the right person to marry. Nothing wrong with that. God can deal with your heart in those in those ways. In other ways, there's times that God can move on us to say, hey, go share the gospel with this person. You could say God spoke to you, and it wouldn't bother me a bit. Furthermore, it wouldn't bother me one bit if somebody pulled me aside and said, you know, hey, Don, I just want to tell you, I feel like God told me to tell you something. I would take that to heart. Um, and even furthermore, <laughs> I don't see how anybody can claim to have ever been saved and say that God didn't speak to them. Right? God has to deal with us, draw us, essentially speaking to us. So to say that God's not speaking today, I don't see how though. That's not in agreement with Scripture even. All right? There is no Scripture that ever says that God doesn't speak to man. It's just a, a view built by the cessationists that I feel like is um, outside of the realm of the teaching of Scripture. So here we go. I'm going to answer the question. Is God still speaking today? Yes! Um... Or, I'm sorry, is the Bible the only inspired work? Let's answer that. That's the question. Is the Bible the only inspired work? After I said everything I said, I'm going to turn it sound like I'm contradicting myself because I say, yes, the Bible is the only inspired work in the regard that it is a superior work and any word that claims to be from God but is in conflict with the Bible ought to be rejected. All right? But also, I would say, no in the sense that I do believe that God can and does speak to men um, in general. All right, there's a whole conversation here surrounding things like sola scriptura um, and prophetic words and voices and all those things. Um, and That's not what this is about here, okay? I'm going to reiterate that. We are to follow the translation and, it's, and, and um, history of the Bible, but we believe the Bible to be inspired, and we believe that God does speak to men today. I have no problem affirming sola scriptura, but also telling you that God's able to speak to men today. I just I just don't see the, the conflict there. I think that it's a made-up conflict. Okay, uh, so there's inspiration. But there's another issue at hand here. Not only inspiration, but what about inerrancy? That's another thing that we talk about with our Bibles, is that oftentimes we say the Bible is inerrant. But is it? Is the Bible inerrancy? What about it? Theologian Wayne Grudem had this to say in reference to the inerrancy of the Bible. And he sets up his sort of apologetic argument with these three premises. Number one, the Bible is God's words. All right, number one, the Bible is God's words. Number two, God never lies. <laughs> Therefore, the Bible never lies. Man, we just close the argument right there. Thank you, Wayne Grudem. We're done. And this is definitely true. But he continues. He continues on and he says this. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the everyday language uh, or in the ordinary language of everyday speech. Okay? Loose or free quotations are not errors. Unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions are not errors. So from this we can conclude that yes, our Bible is free from error in the fact that since it is inspired, it must be necessarily free from error, and the, quote, errors that we find are not truly errors at all. They're scribal differences that exist um, due to mistakes made in sort of the process of translation. Okay, 
<clears throat> okay. Inerrancy. This is interesting. I found this very interesting in my studies. I'm going to read pretty closely to my notes here. Um, but th this this really interests me, interested me recently. Inerrancy is really more of a modern issue than we might think it to be. Exact replicas or copies of any text at all did not exist until in recent years. Okay? Um, I say recent years. Let's say 600 years ago. So that's been a while. Um, but there's a lot of history prior to that. So until the invention of the printing press in 1440 AD. Before the printing press was invented, um, what would happen with any copy that was made of any text or of anything for that matter, a scribe would do their absolute best to ensure that exact replicas existed. However, minor scribal errors always existed in the manuscripts of Scripture. It just happened. Two men sat down, copied the text. There would be minor differences. Handwriting, form, just small types of, of difference that, that would exist. We'll talk about some of those different manuscripts probably next week. Um, so then, before the Protestant Reformation in 1517, before the Protestant Reformation, a given reader, bishop, or whoever that m might be or may not be concerned with the exact, uh, or whosoever that might be may or may not be so concerned with the exactness of each copy of their Bible. There was just an understanding that they were not going to be exact. Okay? There were differences. And that's one reason why we have so many different manuscripts and they're so prevalent um, out there. I mean, uh, just do some research. You'll find that there are so many, I want to say over 5,000 manuscripts that are in existence. In modern times, we've been blessed with so many copies of Scripture that we're afforded the opportunity to uh, debate the exactness of Scripture. Um in ways that the ancients really just weren't able to do. So exactness wasn't such an issue to them. Only in modern times have we, do we sit and we debate and we argue, well, it says this, well, it says this. It was just more of an understood thing many years ago. But here's the question that, that the men um, that, that I was watching a video that they were discussing. They said, have we exchanged the, part of the pursuit of truth with the pursuit of certainty? All right, so I watched a YouTube clip. These guys were having this conversation. And that was one of the things they discussed. Have we exchanged the pursuit of truth with the pursuit of certainty? Okay, and here's, here's what they had to say. <clears throat> Basically, the conversation said that they believed the cults have done this. They have exchanged the pursuit of truth for the pursuit of certainty. Think about this. Think, think of the cults that are out there. All right, um... Let's just use the People's Temple, for example. Jim Jones and his crew, they fly down to South America. And they're not really so concerned with truth, right? If they were, they, 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 it would have, they would have realized that this cannot be. This man can't be who he claims to be. He can't be some form of God or a prophet. And, and he's trying to kill people, and he is killing people. He's killed, a, I believe it was a senator, shot and killed them, made a raid at an airport, and now he wants us to drink... Poison Kool-Aid. That, that cannot be right. This cannot be the truth. But they were so focused on uncertainty. They were certain that this was right, even though they had to know it wasn't the truth. Okay, the cults do that. They are absolutely certain of what they believe, but what they believe is not the truth. I mean, think of Waco, Texas and, and um, the Branch Davidians with David Koresh. Think of um, 
oh my goodness, so many that exist out there. I, I would venture to say Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult, Mormon, Mormonism, Mormons, um, that are just, they believe a false, uh, false representation of what they think to be the truth, and they're absolutely certain of it, but they're wrong. <clears throat> so the cults are focused on the pursuit of certainty over the pursuit of truth. What's this have to do with Bible inerrancy, right? I'm like, okay, whatever. It has a lot to do. There are obvious textual variations that exist in modern translations. There are. You could take five different translations of the Bible, stack them up side by side, um, and you would see differences here and there in the wording of them. It happens with the ancient manuscripts as well. Because these modern English translations that we have were translated from ancient manuscripts. However, here's the thing. So we're so concerned with um, sort of this idea of certainty. I want to be certain that, that we forget about truth. In these translations, none of the major doctrines of Christianity is lost. I would venture or, or I would encourage you maybe, challenge you maybe, <laughs> um, to go and find a translation and see if you can find where some major doctrine is missing. You know, where the deity of Christ is missing, where the virgin birth is missing, where the um, salvation by grace through faith is missing. Um, the major doctrines are all intact, okay? They're, they're, they're there. So then we can take full comfort in the truth of God's word, all right? Even if we don't have a perfect English translation. Let me reiterate this again. The King James Version is not a perfect translation, are there any inerrant manuscript documents that exist today? The answer to that is likely no. There just aren't. We don't have access to the originals. They've been lost, as we mentioned, to history. They're gone. We just don't have them anymore. Um, we do have somewhere around 5,000 um, copies of these originals, but we don't We don't have the originals. <clears throat> but through, through these... 5,000 translators, praise God, um, have preserved the word of God. The word God himself has preserved his word. So um, back to the question, is the Bible inerrant? Yes, um, it is the word of God. And as such, it is inerrant and perfect. And I have no trouble viewing the entire canon of scripture as inerrant. Um, theology, history, poetry, literary elements, all these things uh, remain without error as far as the message of the Bible is concerned. But is the Bible an error? No, because there, again, there are minor scribal errors that exist, variations in the manuscripts. All of these things come together um, to show us that there are small issues here and there. But as a whole, God's word has been preserved. All right. So in conclusion, inspiration and inerrancy are two of the most important and distinguishing characteristics of the Bible. These things not only separate it from every other document um, on the earth in matters of historical, philosophical, literary, etc., etc., um, and the, the, the reliability of all of these things, it gives us as Christians great comfort. It comforts us to know that we hold a document in our hands that's able to answer all of life's questions, that's able to give all of life's comforts, able to lead to forgiveness of all sin, um, and 
praise God for that. So with everything I've said here tonight, um, take comfort in the word. It is inspired by God. As a whole, the word of God has been preserved. We have something that we can trust in. Um, it is inspired. It's the perfect word of God. And thank God for that. Next week, all right, we're going to get into history of the Bible. We're going to start with the first century and just work forward from there and uh, see see where things take us. There's a lot of rich history there, and I look forward to it with you guys. But for now, that's going to do it. Guys, thanks so, so much for joining me tonight, and I will catch you next week. Until then, God bless, and I'll catch you guys next time.